Coming up on today's show, the political football of the vaccine rollout in Canada, government overreach. That's the criticism of a move that was made late last week where your social media content could be regulated by the CRTC. We'll chat with Rachel Harder, who is the Conservative MP for Lethbridge and the critic for digital government. And we talk a lot about diversifying Alberta's economy, but how much do we actually move down the field on that one? Vaccine procurement, vaccine distribution, vaccines administered. One issue broken down into a whole bunch of different parts and a lot of finger pointing and political football going on around this issue. The provinces point the finger at Ottawa for a bad job in getting the vaccines into Canada. Uh, Then there's some fights over getting them out to the provinces. Not bad. That one seems to be pretty quiet. But then there's more finger pointing about the provinces not getting them into the arms of Canadians quickly enough. Our guest now calls it the vaccine gap. It's the difference between the vaccines delivered and the ones that are in storage, and the vaccines delivered and administered. David Aiken is Global's chief political correspondent. He joins us now. So, David, I've been watching over the past few days as you've really taken a deep, deep dive into the data around this whole vaccine rollout battle. So tell us about this vaccine gap, why it's important that we take a closer look at exactly how this is all rolling out. Yeah, so so it's it's an important issue, and again, it really just focuses on, you know, again, that issue around are the vaccines that Ottawa buys and hands out to the provinces are the provinces doing a good job getting them in our in arms quickly enough and here's the the basic fundamental before we start is the deliveries are what i'll call lumpy they they come very infrequently i think i just saw on my twitter feed i think folks in alberta another you know 120,000 doses of pfizer is showing up tomorrow or maybe today but pfizer comes sort of once a week or so moderna vaccine doses are delivered once every 3 weeks astrazeneca's come so the doses come um, really infrequently, but we know the vaccine administration programs, they're pretty much running every day. You need staff and you want to keep it going. Um, vaccine administration programs, say, near an airport where the vaccines arrive, um, easy to get doses in arms there. But if you've got to put them in a, in a truck mm-hmm. and uh, send them to remote rural regions, it's going to take time. So the end result is, I think, what I think is a useful way to look at this is, is vaccine gap or a vaccine utilization rate over time. So, you know, back in February, Alberta, you know, the total number of vaccine doses given to Alberta was a certain amount. And you say, well, how many of those doses went into arms? Let's say five months ago, Alberta got a total of a thousand doses and put 800 into arms. Everybody do the math with me. That's an 80% utilization rate. 80% of all the doses that Alberta got went into arms. So I use that basic concept, the utilization rate, take all the doses you've ever got yeah. and how many have gone into arms on any given day. And I did that for all the provinces and uh, and took a look at where things stood. And Alberta, as it turns out, is among the most effective. It has a high data, or sorry, it has a high vaccine utilization rate, and it's been consistent over over time. Uh, you know, somewhere around seventy-five to eighty percent depends on uh, you know depends uh, on some variables. I say things 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 are lumpy. Yeah, sure. So the the most recent data we have is from yesterday. And let me update you on that. So yesterday, of uh, 
Alberta had received about 1.5 million doses over time. That's the total doses given to Alberta by the feds. And uh, 1.575 and 1.468 million had found their way into an arm. That is a vaccine utilization rate of 93%. In other words, 93% of all the doses that Alberta has have got into arms. Now, we can argue, is it the right arms? Because I know that's been a discussion now about right uh which arms but 93 percent going in arms the day before it was 90 percent the day before that 89 percent and so on the average for april is 78 percent for alberta which is compared to all the provinces specifically the big four bc alberta ontario and quebec it's very good if not leading the way so what that says is if i'm if i'm trying to report on this is if premier kenny stands up and says Hey, we need more vaccines, Ottawa. And sometimes you'll hear perhaps Rachel Notley or other detractors of the premier go, but you've still got so many thousands of doses in the freezers. Why don't you use those? Well, the point here is that over time on any given day, there is, uh, you know, a certain amount of uh, doses in freezers. So you want to look at the percentage. Is it staying the same over time? And I think here's one of the worrying things that in the last several days, the vaccine utilization rate has grown. In other words, there's fewer and fewer doses in freezers. And that says the province is really having to draw down on those stores it needs to maintain vaccination programs. And if you look at the data again, Shay, I don't know if you know this, but yesterday in Alberta, 49,597 people got a dose, first or second, but you know, nearly 50,000 people got a dose. You know how many doses you woke up with this morning in Alberta? I mean, 106,000 doses in the freezer. So that, if there were no doses coming, yeah. you're done in two days. That's it. And that's not very good. Now, there are some more on the way from the federal government. As I mentioned, 120,000 doses of Pfizer coming in right now. But again, that vaccine utilization rate, just to say, is over time, look at it. Is it changing? If it starts to drop, like if we saw a vaccine utilization rate for a few weeks in Alberta of 65% or 70%, well, then maybe Ms. Notley does have a point saying, what the heck's going on? But Alberta has been consistently somewhere between 75 and 80 over three months now, which says no matter how many vaccines are getting delivered to Alberta, it seems to be getting, you know, them into arms at a fairly consistent rate, which is and that rate is better than just about any province, depending on how you measure it. But this is one of those measurements. And, you know, David, I think that um, puts us in a good position now that we have been told that vaccine delivery into Canada and then distribution from Ottawa is going to be much more consistent from this week going forward. Uh, I think it puts us in a good position for Alberta to say, okay, good, finally, we're ready. We have the system in place. We've proven we can crank these vaccines out. I think up until now, you know, it's been very difficult for the provinces to say, okay, let's put this infrastructure in place to handle this week and then find out we're not getting those doses this yeah. week. So they sort of have to have some contingency plan built in, and that may affect how they distribute them. So this is whenever I've talked to a premier's office about this issue, and you're right at the beginning, the deliveries were, the schedules got adjusted at the last minute, and this was very much, very frustrating, not just to Alberta, but to Ontario and BC, Saskatchewan, you name it, that they would try to plan to have staff, et cetera. And of course, let's remind people, Shay, that, you know, the Pfizer still takes some special handling, yep. special freezing equipment. Moderna's got to be kept cold. <clears throat> AstraZeneca and J&J are uh, a little easier to use, but 
it's true. We, the, as, according to you know this week's uh, briefings here in Ottawa, we're going to start to see two million doses of Pfizer a week, basically every Monday, come in the country. Now, Pfizer, the Pfizer folks themselves do the delivery, so Pfizer takes it to. I think they come to Edmonton. They may come to Calgary. Not sure where. Maybe both actually, um, and then they get sort of put into trucks and delivered to sites. So um, that logistics process, Alberta can now plan for, saying we know we're going to get this. You know, th- this many are going to be in a freezer at Calgary Airport or at the Edmonton Airport. We'll have trucks ready to go, and we'll drive them out to Lethbridge. We'll mm-hmm. drive them up to Fort Mac, where we obviously we got a situation in Fort Mac right now. So, so that's 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 why it's important for provinces to know that they're getting them. Now, I should point out that the doctors I speak to, the public health folks, say, okay, even if you are utilizing vaccines at an 80% rate. Can we bump that to 85? You know, they, they would like it to go much quicker. And I think provinces want it to go quicker. But the end, end line is whatever I think at this point, all the provinces have demonstrated roughly consistent delivery rates. Some are better than others. As I mentioned, Alberta is, is a bit better than uh, BC. BC is a bit better than Ontario. Ontario is about the same as Quebec. But the point is, everybody's consistent over time, which means Ottawa, the more doses you can throw at these provinces, they have shown yeah. that they are ready to deliver those at a consistent rate. And again, recognizing Shane, people will jump in. You know, that's separate to do with case counts, which is another public health issue. That's separate to do with which arms should get them first. Alberta has got a different priority list than many others. I've, I pointed out when, you know, on our national news programs, Alberta, for instance, put indigenous uh, populations higher on its priority list than many other provinces. It yep. said that was sort of number two, I think, in the terms of the priority after uh, the uh, long-term care folks and, and healthcare workers. So everybody's making different decisions, but Alberta's decisions on vaccine delivery looking relatively good compared to other provinces. Very reassuring now that we know there'll be a flood of vaccines or we're promised we hope. more consistent delivery. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 we hope. And, and, uh, and then we get into the total number of vaccinated. Uh, I'll try and crunch those numbers a little later on. By the way, just so everybody knows, there's a great site called COVID19tracker.ca. It's put together by some volunteers at the University of Saskatchewan. That's where I've got this data that I'm using to compute. And it's data taken directly from public health units right across the country. It's one of the best Canadian sites. It's, it's not a government site. It's done by researchers and volunteers. And it's uh, it's tremendous. COVID19tracker.ca is where you can look at other graphs, compare provinces, and you can download the data yourself and do your own number crunching. Excellent. Great, great information. Thanks so much, David. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Cheers. Talk to you later. That is David Aiken, Global's chief political correspondent. Um, and uh, check him out on Twitter. He was doing a lot of posting about this over the past couple of days where he's really broken these numbers down and put together some graphics and some graphs and some images that really indicate clearly that the provinces over time have done a very good job of handling whatever they get from Ottawa, getting it out the door and getting it into the arms of Canadians. They've been doing the job. It's, you know, is, is it 100%? No. But as David said, you don't necessarily want to be at 100%. This listener in texting saying, does that mean that 20% of vaccines are not used? No, what that means is the way that the provinces have put the program in is they're going to be using this many so that they have a continued vaccine program that they can sustain. Because if they ramp it up and run out after two days, then what do you do with the infrastructure and the people and everything like that? Well, you wait for your next delivery, right? So they're getting the deliveries from Ottawa and they are getting them out. 
in an efficient fashion, and we're getting people vaccinated. Now, the good news is that framework is in place, and with the millions and millions of doses that are supposed to be arriving in Canada next month, we should have a pretty good system in place to get them into the arms of Canadians as quickly as possible. So some reassuring news. Provinces are doing a pretty good job with vaccine administration. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We're going to switch gears now and talk about another story that has a lot of people really shaking their heads in our country. Ottawa is desperate to bring in some law and order to the wild west of the internet and social media. We know that. We've talked about it before here on the show. They've launched a handful of initiatives aimed at dealing with offensive content, you know, fair compensation for content creators, leveling the playing field for streaming services and broadcasters in this country. Lots of different, you know, aims to this. And most recently, though, a House of Commons committee cleared the way for the federal government to regulate content on social media. The government to regulate content on social media. It's got a lot of people upset. Uh, Rachel Harder is the Conservative MP for Lethbridge and the opposition critic for digital government. She joins us now. So, um, Rachel, thanks for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Um, Critics of this move have been pretty clear, and it seems on the surface very, very obvious. Um, This seems to be a pretty clear violation of freedom of expression. Do you agree with that? Mm, 100%, absolutely. I, I think they're setting themselves up for a constitutional challenge here. You know, under Section 2B within the Constitution, we, we have our freedom of speech protected. And uh, this bill goes far beyond what is necessary and definitely infringes upon Canadians' rights. Um, the change that was made, uh, why was it made? I mean, mm-hmm. what, what, what is the logic behind <laughs> it? And um, why did they think that this would be something that would be accepted by Canadians? Sure. So originally in this bill, there was a provision that protected individual users and the content that they put up online. So, you know, a TikTok video or a YouTube video of their cats or their kids playing or things like that. Um, Those things originally would have been protected in this legislation. However, what recently happened just last week in committee is that a member within the Liberal Party moved a motion to revoke the clause that offered that protection. And so now when an individual posts something to YouTube or TikTok or Facebook, they're considered to be posting what's called programming rather than just individually owned content. So when they do that, then they become regulated by the CRTC, which means, of course, that uh, the government in power can very much dictate what is allowed and what is not allowed to be posted. So how would that work, though? I mean, the CRTC obviously can't monitor everything that's going on on social media. Would it be done <laughs> through a complaint mechanism? Have they, have they got that far down this? Mm, it's extremely vague right now. Yeah. You know, like I said, the, the, the change was made last week. But what we do know is, you know, yesterday in question period, I asked the minister about this. And what he responded to me with is he said, you know, there's more legislation to come, which I find interesting um, because basically what he's indicating is that there is more control to come. There is more censorship to come. There are more infringements to come, uh, which is troubling. And Canadians should rightly be very concerned about that. Now, like you say, there, there were safeguards to, you know, individuals uploading things like that. Now, the, the, the Liberals are saying that that hasn't changed. We still have that. You know, this isn't about mm. policing your particular um, TikTok cat video or whatever the case may be. Um, they're saying those safeguards are still in place. 
Yeah, you know what? I'm not allowed to say this in the House of Commons, but I'll say it here. It is an outright lie for the minister to say that. Um, there was a government official who was at committee, Owen Ripley, and uh, when he was asked to comment on the impact that it would have if this clause were to be removed, he said that any programming that an individual puts on YouTube, etc., he said that that programming would be would would then be subject to regulation moving forward. And he advised the committee that they may want to think twice about removing the clause. With that, the Liberal member uh, moved forward and still asked that it be removed. And on division, uh, it, it, it was. Now, the other, you know, the other pushback on that is, well, of course, we're not going to be policing what somebody's putting on their TikTok or their Facebook or their YouTube or anything like that. But, you know, having been around long enough, you recognize that once the door to this kind of change has been opened, it's very easy to, to end up in that position before you even know what happened. Yeah, and again, I would just say, look, if, if, if you have no intent on policing individuals' content, then, then why not just leave the clause in? Why not offer that, that mechanism of protection? Why not give Canadians that peace of mind? Instead, you know, you have a big, bloated government that I believe is wanting to exert its authority, is wanting to control, is wanting to censor what people can and cannot say. Um, and of course, by that, when I say censorship, I mean anything Mr. Trudeau doesn't like. It'll get, the, it'll get taken down. It'll be called inappropriate. Potentially, potentially, that 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 can be that can be the benchmark, right? I mean, we don't know exactly how it's going to work out. Now, clearly, the government is feeling pressure to try and get some sort of regulatory policy around the internet, which uh, is a big job. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. media companies have been calling out and saying they're not fairly compensated. They're competing on a, a unlevel playing field with the big streaming services. Um, you know, the, the, the horrible content and misinformation that we see on social media. So there are some issues, I think, with social media. Um, how does a government establish some order, or do they, or is this, should this be the Wild West and freedom to have anything go? Well, you know, I think one important thing for Canadians to recognize is that we already have laws in place within the criminal code that protect against things like libel or slander or promoting hatred. Um, and so we know that that type of inappropriate conduct, whether it be, you know, within the non-virtual world or within the virtual world, we know that Canadians are, are protected from, from those things. So perhaps then the problem is not that we are without laws. Perhaps the problem is that we are uh, failing to enforce the laws that we already have. And so I would encourage the government to, you know, perhaps look at that to a greater extent. Yeah, and we always seem to come back to that. We already have laws in place. We just don't enforce the ones we already have. It doesn't matter what the issue is. That seems (laughs) to be a major problem we're facing. Yeah, I, look, I, I, again, I, I would just say, you know, the, the, the role of the government should be to protect the greatest degree of freedom possible. Right. Um, you know, it, it should be with great sobriety that laws are put in place um, and, and only when absolutely necessary. And I, I would contend that because we have protection under the criminal code, um, further legislation, particularly that looks like what Bill C-10 does, uh, is just simply not necessary. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us for a few minutes. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. You bet. Thanks very much. That is okay. Rachel Harder, who is the Conservative MP for Lethbridge and the critic for Digital Government. I'm almost 50 years old, born and raised in Alberta. 
Worked in the Alberta news environment, if you want to call it that, for, for well over 25 years now. And for as long as I can remember, we've talked endlessly in this province about how important it is to diversify our economy. And over that time, we've had government after government after government talk about it and not really see a whole lot of advancement. It hasn't really happened to any large degree. That's not to say there aren't some amazing entrepreneurs in these parts who are, who are doing great things. The tech sector, as we know, is really emerging. On the government level, we have seen both the federal and provincial governments um, you know, talk about some new endeavors around hydrogen and nuclear. So we are seeing some progress, but uh, clearly we can be doing more. And there are some emerging industries we are in a perfect position to capitalize on. I'd like to take some time and talk about them. There are some barriers to the success that we need to deal with, and there's been a major setback for one of these industries in our province. Alison Amateur is the board chair of the Plant Protein Alliance. She joins us now to tell us about an industry that is really, really taking off globally, um, but maybe not so much in our province. Alison, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Shay. Thank you. Um, okay, let's start just uh, by letting everybody know what the Plant Protein Alliance is. What are we talking about? Well, you know, you nailed it in your opener. There was a group of us about four or five years ago that said we could do so much more with adding value in this province to what we are growing. And really what we need to do is organize so that the ecosystem will be able to uh, coordinate and know who is who, work with the government, work with regulations, work uh, with upside and downside supply chain, and and help everybody to build. So we started out because of what you talked about. We can diversify and really grow Alberta's economy through what we're already growing a lot of in this province, which is uh, pulses, canola, wheat, barley, hemp, oats. Etc. Etc. Now, when we talk about plant protein, uh, what I'm, you know, and just because of the the media marketing, it seems to be that you know plant based meat replacements and all the rest of these things are everywhere these days. Is that primarily what we're talking about? That opportunity, that emerging market. You know, that is one part of it, but it's a bit of a misnomer. We should be calling ourselves plant based food alliance in a lot of ways because we're also looking at the uses for starch, the uses for fiber, the non-food uses such as health or beauty aids or pharmaceuticals or bioindustrial. There are so many opportunities to add value to what we are growing rather than just loading it all in a rail car and shipping it off to someone else to add value to it. So this has been your focus for a few years in Alberta now, trying to get uh, everybody on board and sort of, you know, build a network and uh, and a supply system and everything like that. But a major setback for you, the province has pulled your funding, right? Yeah, unfortunately, because we're a relatively emerging industry and uh, we, we need core funding, And so the government had recognized that and had given us some working capital for core funding for three years. And this year, although they they told us we had it in March, they pulled it on the last day of the fiscal, on March 31st. So what does this mean for your group? We, We had made it very clear, without core funding, we have to begin a shutdown. Uh, We have some membership funding. We have a a great membership of about 150 different companies and organizations in the sector, but we obviously can't charge a lot to each member or we would have no members. (laughs) So our our membership funding uh, helps us with a few things, but, but without core funding, we can't continue. And 
if we can't continue, there's no one left that's really building that ecosystem in Alberta. It means uh, companies and so on are are having to do all their own connections or, you know, kind of operating in a vacuum. So tell us a bit more about the work that you were doing and what you were focused on and how it's helping people involved in this industry. Just give me a little clarity around that. Okay. So it, our mandate, our mantra has been connect, learn, share. We We don't actually do the work ourselves, but we connect with the people who are doing it. So, for example, a processing company needs to be connected to toll chain uh, providers, to supply people, to uh, downstream buyers, to investors, uh, maybe angel, maybe venture capital, maybe banks, uh, maybe to people that help with business plans. There's, There's maybe people doing research. There's so many different aspects. It's, it's far more than just go and build a plant and get up and running. And our role was connect all the different parts of the ecosystem together, uh, share the learning. We shared uh, what was going on both provincially, nationally, and even internationally. So everybody was far more informed. And uh, we did a lot of of learning when we could do it in person. It was through conferences and uh, networking sessions, and since COVID, we've gone to a lot more webinars where people will say, you know, what they learn is important, whether it was fractionation, financing, whatever, but who they who they meet mm-hmm. is critical. The yeah. networking. Yeah. You can't put a price on networking, but it is so valuable. Now, this market, as we say, uh, it continues to be growing. Uh, you know, we hear more and more about it every day. Are there other provinces that are in a position to capitalize more so than Alberta? Are things happening in our neighbors' jurisdictions that we're missing out on? Yeah, unfortunately, I wouldn't say they're in a position to capitalize. I would say that they are taking advantage of the position to capitalize. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba really are the provinces that are are set for the most growth because we grow this product. We have the the electricity, the water, the people. We have everything we need. But whereas Saskatchewan and Manitoba have put both words and funding behind their intention to grow the industry, um, we're, we're not getting enough of either from our government. And the lack of that telegraph signals to industry that we really don't want to send. <laughs> we want to send this great big, Alberta's open for business, come on, we'll do anything we can to help you, which is, is what PPAA has been trying to do. And by the government stopping funding us and not sending out that huge, yeah, we see the opportunity message, uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba will eat our lunch if we're not careful. Um, you know, in response to media requests about this, and you know, what was the reasoning? The government has said, you know, they funded this program. I think it's about eight hundred k over the past few years, so it's a fair chunk of change. And you know, they say we just went through a pandemic; the deficits are soaring. We do need to make cutbacks here. So they're saying that, you know, I mean, you can see their argument, right? They can't give money to every interest group out there. Yeah, and I I hear what they're saying. I mean, the funding sounds like more until you break it down and, and you try and run an organization on $250,000 a year. We've been very, very lean. We we don't have a head office or anything, volunteer board, the whole bit. But it's more than that. If the government was doing what we were doing, there would be no need for us. And if that was the case, the industry 
would not be in an uproar that we're not being funded. We're, we're getting letters of support, um, not just daily, it's almost hourly from all of the different companies because no one else is doing it. So I understand what the government's saying, but by the same token, nobody is doing it and it's not enough to just um, stop funding it. That There needs to be something doing this and, and frankly, it's not happening. Okay, let me play devil's advocate here for just a minute. You've been operating for three years, and um, you're pointing out several instances where Alberta is lagging behind, and clearly we are. So uh, does the alliance have some responsibility? Can the government make a case to say, well, you've been doing this for three years, and we haven't really made a lot of headway. Why do we keep throwing money into this? Maybe there's a better way of doing it. Well, and I, I would tell you, the government's not saying that, and we won't have to look hard to to hear what we have accomplished in a very short time from a startup organization. Uh, we were integral in bringing a major international protein conference uh, that in 2019 held half its conference in Calgary and half in Saskatoon. First time it had ever been out of Lille, France, and uh, Bridge to Food was operating here. Uh, we had two members of our board that were integral in getting the supercluster funding for Protein Industries Canada because we went and, and we said, look, this is a huge opportunity for the prairies. We, we worked on the LOI and we got it. So even those two wins were huge. But beyond that, uh, we, we've said it's like a snowball that has been growing in Alberta, that PPAA has been rolling and rolling and rolling, and we were just getting over the crest of the hill and going down. There, we've had tremendous success. Even the government will tell you we've had success. Okay. The other question I have is, you know, if it, if it is doing such a great job for these, um, you know, these companies and these producers and things like that, is there a, any discussion at all about self-funding? I mean, if, it, if it's that beneficial to them and it opens up the market and it makes um, what they're trying to do so much better, is there not some motivation there for them to make sure this organization doesn't go away and to foot the bill on their own? You know, we'd, we'd dearly love to see that. And because our industry is still as young as it is, it, it's not going to happen with self-funding. We do not have large enough players and enough of them for that to happen yet. I see that 10 years down the road uh, when we have a lot more players uh, up and running in Alberta. But at this point, we, we simply don't have the system built up to that point. That's the ideal, though, Shay. I, I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't want this to always have to be a government-funded yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay, so f- at, at this point in time, the the Plant Protein Alliance is is done. It's shut down, and uh, is that is that the end of the story, or may we see this reemerge down the road? Is there talks with the government and self-funding and things like that? Is this something that could return someday? Right now, we're in shutdown mode. I I can tell you, if the government turned around today and said, "Okay, we changed our mind." Um, and if we are all so passionate about the industry, we would say, okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but without funding, uh, we, you know, we, we cannot do it. I, we compare it often to the oil and gas industry 50, 60 years ago in Alberta that really needed both some government support and some core funding to, to get off the ground and become more than it was. And I think we're in the same place today. We just we need both the words and the funding to really get Alberta off the ground. 
Uh, thank you so much for joining me this morning, Allison. I really appreciate it and giving us a little insight into the situation you're dealing with right now. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Shay. Thank you. That is Allison Amateur, who is the board chair of the Plant Protein Alliance in Alberta. What do you think? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.